everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. How many times do you find yourself in the middle of a work project and the next thing you know, you are completely distracted from the task at hand? Well, shame on you, slacker. Whether it's a phone notification or a coworker, there are plenty of productivity terrorists at every corner, and it may even come in the form of a podcast like this one. This week, find out how these distractions are really affecting your success and exactly how to sift through the beneficial smartphone interaction and the absolute life-sucking bullshit of social media. Stand up to Chatty Karen at work and finally finish your TPS reports. That's right. It's episode 330. Nation, it's that time again. It's your bottom hour scheduled every Friday. For the premier pod, what? what? Maybe people don't listen to it on Friday. Maybe mm-hmm. listen on Sunday when they're doing yeah. yard work. That's also true. Why We're does Sunday just... have to be for yard work? Well, can Sunday just be for drinking beers on the couch and watching football? Only if now it is. Yeah, tis the season. That's right. But I mean, I'm not drinking beers on the couch. What are you drinking? Jaeger? Drinking wine out of the box? Jaeger bombs? Straight up. I got two. Uh, my two go-tos right now are boxed wine and White Claws. <laughs> Combined? <laughs> the sorority girl in you. The Man, sorority girl in you. Is I right would have been one hell of a sorority girl. But here I am now with you toxic males. <laughs> uh, dude, so you sent me those pictures of all that Jaeger. Did you yeah. buy that? No. Oh, Man, thank God. I did get, I did get queasy. Uh, yes. Dude, when you sent me that picture, I kind of threw up in my mouth. I was like... Ladies I, and gentlemen. I got us a gift, John, for the, um, the table. Yes. Always given. Ladies you know? and gentlemen, out here in Texas, Twin Liquors is one of the big liquor stores. It, it's national right? brand. Oh, is it yeah, national? Yeah, we had one I in oh, Virginia. Oh, I, you know, I looked over there and I wondered where the Jameson came from. And then I thought, I was like, maybe when Tex uh, did, when we got the Irish coffee kit, you got the Jameson. And I uh, said, see it. No, I prefer the Jameson in my Irish coffees, but that's bias. Ah, uh, is because of um, you know uh, the Buena Vista and the fact that they use JMO and they don't use Jameson. What um, did they use? Keep rolling. I got to look this up. Yeah, it no. was Twin Liquors Dollar Day Sale, which is three day sale extravaganza out here, where they had deep discounts on booze and. I had to go check it out. Did how many white claws did you buy? They didn't discount white claws because oh. they were fucking sold out, bitches. So I went there and uh, McQuicken was across town. He was he was indisposed. So I asked him what he needed uh, to stock up his liquor cabinet because it's my belief that a homeowner should always have a stocked liquor cabinet for true. guests with, with some host. of the basics: tequila, yeah. rum, yeah. Uh, gin. If you're into that type of thing, which I am into gin Ooh. in the in the not in the hot months, but like the autumn. Mm. But um, anyway, so I went and checked it out, and they had fucking gal- like uh, one point seven fives of Jaeger for how, what was the price, John? Thirty bucks? Yeah, or something? it was cheap. Woof. But we were just talking about a few days ago how. How did we ever like that shit? Because I think everybody went through a year phase. Social. Intern, Jaeger social. Phase. Uh, intern, yeah. intern approved. Uh, we, we went, uh, I told you Steve Everett, who uh, was an old guy that I played with, um, played at Michigan, pretty famous dude, uh, at his house when we would go over there to like um, on days off or the party or whatever, he had two massive refrigerators. Uh, one of them was stuck, stuck with nothing but uh red Gatorades, like fruit punch Gatorades. And then the other one was a freezer that had Jaeger and uh, ice cream sandwiches. And that was it. The essentials. And when we'd go over there, there was nothing. We had nothing to eat other than ice cream sandwiches, Jaeger and red Gatorades. And so just the thought of Jaeger. So anyways, 
I don't know where we were necessarily going with that story, but now we do have some JMO. A nice leader of JMO. Well, I was there, thinking we do need ice cube trays. Because mm. the ice cube trays we have now are filled with coffee. Espressos. Coffee cubes, which is a nice way to stay cool on a hot, steamy podcast day. Enough about our... So to wrap this up... Just one more thing about our... <laughs> to Lamore do is the oh, Irish That's whiskey. right, that's right, that's right. We do know that. Hmm. Man, uh, so Tex and I, last time we were in San Francisco working with Dave Spitz, uh, we decided before we jumped on the plane to swing by and have a few ICs at the at the Buena Vista, and I think we had what five <laughs> or six. Yeah, that will and happen. Then, and then had to uh, get to the airport, and I remember they're like, "Hey, you guys want one more?" I'm like, "Nah, five is my limit." Oh, being able well, to get to the airport, man, it was it was madness packed, and then I guess our bartender was literally pouring fifteen plus at a time. Yeah, just going through. We had a good system, and looking at their website, I guess he's the official. Oh, he's the guy. He's the guy. This oh no! Him yeah. Right here. Yeah, no, he's been what the guy. What time of day was this? Um, mm, the sun was up. Yeah, like evening though, afternoon, evening. It was like an afternoonish. I, I would be up till fucking the three more days. You mean you can't drink five Irish, Irish coffees and go right to bed? No. Well, you're absolutely weak. not. That's called weakness, Luke. I had uh, you made me two at Thanksgiving, and I was up. I was uh, up you're still up watching like. <laughs> The most bizarre shit on TV because I couldn't fall asleep. So I remember as a kid, and this is the total irony of this thing. I remember going to the Buena Vista as a kid with my parents, and that dude was behind the bar. Hmm. The same. Oh, and here's an old timey photo of him, dude. He's, bartender, tend, bartender Larry Nolan. Shout out to you on Power Athlete Radio. Dude. Uh, I remember as a kid, like in the eighties, we would go to San Francisco and like my parents lived there. So we would go to like Fisherman's Wharf and we'd hit like, uh, Scomo's, which is a, uh, like a fish restaurant down on Fisherman's Wharf. And then when we'd go to the Irish coffee or, uh, the Buena Vista, which, which is where my parents met. And so we'd always kind of do this deal. And I remember as a kid, that dude behind the bar. Mm. And every time I've been there, he has been there. So he must work like every night. Yeah, and it he says has here for, he serves two thousand up to two thousand Irish coffees a day. And then how long has he been there? Fuck. Like since the sixties, seventies? Uh well the Buena Vista opened in nineteen seventy five. Wow. Fun fact. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're in San Francisco On the Wharf. On the Wharf. Had there get Irish coffee. See what we're jabbering about. Yeah, they're, they're, I was not there. I'll, I was probably drinking white claws or boxed wine. Uh, yeah, I mean high probability. Uh, yeah. yeah. Story checks out. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> enough about us enough about the booze uh let's get on to the opportunity to share an irish coffee with us coming this december five six and seven in austin texas the premier strength and conditioning experience in austin in december the power athlete symposium <laughs> that was yeah those <sighs> the, the crowd that's goes the wild that's the roar of the, the crowd. crowd goes wild <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are about halfway through ticket sales. You only have a few more weeks to get your tickets to come out to Austin, Texas, the 5th, 6th, and 7th of December. We're going to be in downtown Austin uh, at day one, Thursday, is going to be at 800, 800 Congress. It's right in the heart of downtown. We're going to have a hell of a kickoff event. We have our annual Wade's Army. Not so. Not so. Silent auction. hey oh. 
That's going to be Thursday night. I actually it's had somebody epic. hit me up on Instagram asking what's in John Walburn's pocket, and I told him not a truck. Not a taser. It's a taser. Not a taser. It is. I was like, you know, we did a truck last year. We're probably just going to have to go back to ones and beef jerky. Yeah. Crumpled up $1 bills, maybe 100 and then some coupons. And Rudy Reyes' bracelet that he told me the Dalai Lama gave him, which I gladly just gave back to him. I'm like, we don't need this. Fuck, man. But So that's day one. Kicking off. Yeah. You didn't auction. even ask for it. It just ended up in your pocket somehow. Well, it, was, it was actually in my underwear. He still stuffed mm-hmm. it in my undies. That's, that's Front how side we or brought. backside? Uh, we'll get over that later. Uh, day two starts with a practical. Yes. All attendees invited. We have a, a venue, East Austin Athletic Center. It's got to be, what, 10,000 square feet? Yeah, it's huge. We're going to have a two to three hour practical with power athlete. So you're going to be able to work with John, myself, Tex, all of our block one coaches, a group of them. We're going to take you through an epic training uh, segment and followed by some sort of legit little uh, brunch. Would you call it brunch mm-hmm. by that time? Sure. And then from right there, we're going to flip the script and get right into speakers. Some talk to me, Johnny segments, some podium speakers from thought leaders in the space we're talking about today, which is like productivity, leadership, uh, indistractability, mm-hmm. uh, everything from that down to uh, our coaching over to our you know strength coaches. We, we're, we have it all. We're going to have everybody there that you're ever going to want to hear from. Word on the street is I'm pushing for. Now, this is an experience. This is not a clinic. This is not. What are they? What are the dichotomy? They call it a clinic or a, a conference. conference. It's clinic. not a clinic. It's not a conference. An experience. Because I'm going to be pushing for Rob Wolf to be serving element margaritas in a Speedo. <laughs> what are the chances we can get that going? Uh, I'm thinking more like a uh, like a loincloth. Yes. Perfect. Oh, yeah. paleo Because Mars. he's a paleo guy. No, I thought it was uh, we were going to get him in a hazmat suit like in uh, Breaking Bad. Not, no, with that dad bod? <laughs> Dude, Rob Wolf's shredded. He's shirtless. It's just that simple. It's got to be. Uh, okay. Or maybe he's in the hazmat suit and then the siren goes off. And he, like, and he just like, like <laughs> some <laughs> weird like, word stripper thing. <laughs> like the, the fact Simpsons, that you've been thinking. We work hard and we play hard too. Um, <laughs> I think that'd be great. So that's. <laughs> Is that then, an auction item? Uh, maybe. A lap dance from Rob Wolf. <laughs> I'm bidding. Uh, well, I just want to know what the, how much we're bidding on to put the, uh, the, the, the alligator clips on Texas nipples before yes. we shock him. <laughs> no. Because. We'll, we'll save that for, okay. What's in John Walworth's pocket? Yes. A set of alligator clips for Texas nipples. To taste Tex. Taste Tex. That's just day two. Aren't you guys exhausted from all of this epic adventure? Day three, we have another practical session with coaches that we're rallying, some of the best coaches we know, to give you the nuts and bolts of training, of recovery, of preparatory work. Speed work, strength work, we're going to blow your minds. And then we have day three, the final day, another Talk to Me Johnny segment, a couple more speakers, and then we're kicking the road. We're going to have a little Austin-themed food truck there, uh, that, as well as throughout the whole weekend, or I guess day two and three, our feats of strength mm. yes, competition. The best. Which will be going on. It's going to be like, you know, power athlete meets... Uh, Circus? Yeah, what's the... Ringling Brothers, right? Was that the circus? Barnum and Bailey. Barnum and Bailey. Well, it's inspired by the Stark Center. So when we went to go tour the Stark Center, we got to see all these weird and awkward and strange implements, mm-hmm. which got the wheels turning. And I have the uh, material to make some very interesting stuff uh, for our power athlete feats of strength. What if one of the events was Dunk the Intern? 
In what? Fire? Broken glass. Oh, broken glass. I was going to say fire. So it's like a dunk tank with a whole bunch of broken glass. That's set on fire? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's fire. Are there sharks with laser beams on their head? Sharks no, with freaking lasers. They're more like uh, aggressive sea bass. So ladies and gentlemen, what you should be understanding is this ain't no dang conference. This ain't no dang clinic. This is an experience. The Power Athlete Symposium 2019 Knowledge is Power. Get your tickets today. Events.powerathletehq.com slash symposium. Anything mm. else to say about that? No. Nope. What about you, big guy? We're ready to rock. All right. Let's talk about our guest. Indistractability, people. Learn the difference between traction and distraction because it's not... What, was, what did we think the opposite of distraction was again? Do you uh, focus. Focus. Yeah. Right. It is not. And you're going to learn why. Okay. We have Nir Al, who is a author. He came out with... A, you know, I remember Ben Crookston talking about yeah. the Hooked book. No, yeah. Uh, I, a, I do too. Yeah. A book called Hooked, which is ultimately how these a lot of these tech companies are playing on psychology to make their apps addicting, right? And uh, what Nir broke into into that is like you can... There's responsibility, right? There's good and bad to this. But what he's going to be talking about today is his new book, Indistractability, which gives you uh, a framework and a workflow on how to be ultimately, I guess, the buzzword would probably be more productive, but really understanding what your intrinsic values are and how to action them and realize what is causing you to be distracted by all the fancy shit around you, right? So I thought it was a pretty good one. I don't know about you guys. I had a fucking great time. I think you have... Um Information bias. Information bias. Yeah. Explain. Well, you you know that the information's good, so you're biased mm-hmm. against it. Well, when you control the mail, John, you, you control, control the information. information. Uh, Let's do it. Absolutely. Here we go. Power Athlete Radio. It is tradition, I guess, to talk. How long have we been going? How many episodes have we been gracing our listeners with? The weather report? Irrelevant weather information in Austin, uh, Texas. So uh, <laughs> Luke has this thing because he knows uh, Callie, who produces our podcast, uh, actually despises Luke's weather reports. Yes. So he usually does it to upset her. And then, you know, within the mm-hmm. vein of our company, the idea of beating a dead horse is really just, I mean, if something's not funny today, it's going to be funny the thousandth time you've heard it in a row, you know? It's about perseverance. <laughs> That's it's right. It's a lesson of perseverance. Yeah. <laughs> about consistently annoying people. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. We, yeah, we can't get distracted by them being annoyed. We just got to keep exactly. going. That's no, no, no. exactly right. No, well, we're looking to distract them. Oh, well, we know from our work environment. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> a goal, not the goal. <laughs> Uh, you got a lot of things going on. <laughs> a lot anyway. of ins, lots of outs. Well, near. Hey, man, thank you so much for joining us on Power Athlete Radio. And uh, as you may or may not know, this is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. Where were you on that one, McQuilkin? I was distracted. <laughs> <laughs> but near, uh, you know, we've we've made it a. We've made an effort to get outside of like the sets and reps of banging weights and things like that. And a lot of the folks that listen to our podcast are coaches and they enjoy that stuff. But we also like to stray outside and just really focus on empowering our listeners with new information and getting guests on like you, man. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, take, I don't know, 5, 10, 20 minutes, 60 minutes. Give us some background, man. Let us know. i to clear my throat here for that long. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm ready. Uh, yeah, so let's see. So where, where does the story begin? So my uh, research into what's called behavioral design uh, started 
Back in 2007, uh, I started a, a tech company that was in the advertising and gaming space, and I learned a lot about how various products can change our behavior. I had this front row seat in Silicon Valley to see the rise of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. And so I, I had a fascination with how these companies do it. And that led me to write my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And the idea behind that book was, you know, what if we could take the same psychology that makes all of these tech products so sticky and use that for good? And that's exactly what's happened. So 250,000 copies later, and uh, thousands of startups around the world have used the Hooked methodology to build healthy habits in their users, to get them to exercise more, to help people save money, to get them to uh, you know, be more productive at work, all using the same psychology that uh, is the basis of many of these habit-forming technologies that we use today. But then, of course, you know, being on the inside of the industry, I also had a front row seat to see how sometimes these products can be overused. And in that respect, I was patient zero. I found that I was becoming distracted uh, by many of these, these technologies that I uh, profiled in the book that, uh, you know, I would, I would sit down with my daughter and have a play date with her and I'd find myself on my phone and, as opposed to being fully present with her. I'd sit down to do my work and uh, I'd say, okay, I'm going to do that big project I need to do today, you know, the thing I've been procrastinating on, and I'd, I'm definitely going to do it this morning, right after I check email. Uh, and then I'd find myself still scrolling and, and checking email or Google or whatever for 30, 45 minutes later. Uh, I wasn't taking care of my body. I was uh, neglecting workouts. I was neglecting my health, even though that's something that's an important value to me. Uh, it's not until the last you know, two and a half, three years now that I've actually uh, gotten, gotten into better shape. I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life. And all of these problems were caused by the fact that I kept getting distracted. I knew what I wanted to do, and yet I didn't do it. I didn't follow through. And so that's kind of the genesis of this next book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, because I, I really do believe that having the power to do what it is you say you're going to do is the skill of the century. That if you don't have the power to control your attention, then you can't control your life. And the fact is that you know distraction's been around a very, very long time, but... If it's distraction you seek, today distraction you will find because we carry around these devices with us at all time that makes it so easy to get distracted and do something we didn't plan to do. And so I, I don't think, I'm not of the vein that technology is evil or that it's hijacking your brain or that it's even addictive to most people, but it can be very distracting. And so that's what I want to help people do is to live out their goals, live out their, their values uh, by becoming indistractable. John, you know, uh, no, I mean, I, as I'm sitting here listening, I'm, I'm thinking like, uh, is it, I guess the, the question is, is it the device or do people not have a life that they want to lead? So they're actually looking for something to distract them from their life. Like, I, yeah, I, so you, I yeah. yeah, I mean, like, that's the piece I, uh, whenever I hear people talk about, oh, this, you know, these technologies is distracting you set up this way. I'm like, I just think it's people hiding from their lives. You know, why couldn't you tell me this five years ago? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. yeah. So when I started on this path, uh, I kind of bought the popular narrative, which is the device is doing it to you, right? The devices are built to be addictive. They're built to be habit for me. And I know I wrote the book on, on how they hook you. <laughs> um, like, and well, yeah, I mean, uh, now that you're talking about it, I'm like, shit, like I'm upset that I didn't read it. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, like. Yeah. Well, I feel like we might be able to get a little lesson in kind of the Cliff's Notes on Yeah, no, I mean, got I... got the I, man, the source right uh, here. Yeah, I mean, I know you're, um, you know, we're here to talk about the, uh, you know, the present book and then, but yeah, man, I'd love to get into the hook thing as well because I just think that's so fascinating to, 
so much of what we seem to do is to help people build good habits. I mean, consistency, uh, consistency, you know, narrative, all the things, you know, helping people be part of something bigger. We found that, you know, if we could almost create this kind of team mentality that we could get people, you know, faster to their goals if they felt that they were, you know, had an army of people behind them to do these things. Well, it's like that it's gamifications, it's badging, it's leveling up. It's all the stuff we learn in like the video games and stuff too, is what's being pulled into I th- a lot of the the psychology of this apps and shit like that, right? So yeah, no. So yeah, no. I'm, I'm interested, but yeah, yeah, it can be. So gamification is is one potential behavioral design technique. It's not the only one, and in many cases, it's not all that effective because it uses what's called extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation is when you find uh, some some kind of motivation outside of the activity itself. So this is why you know giving people. Uh, you know, a, a ribbon and uh, congratulations, you know, here's your trophy when you didn't actually perform. Uh, we know it also decreases creativity. Uh, we know the studies with when children are asked to draw a, a, a beautiful picture, they'll be less creative if you give them rewards. Uh, we know people will stick with tasks less, uh, they're less likely to stick with tasks over the long term if they're doing it simply for some kind of extrinsic reward, as opposed to intrinsic motivators, right? The kind of person who becomes a long-term athlete uh, is the kind of person who finds enjoyment not in the prize, not in the, the the one-time victory, but in the behavior itself. And so that's a game changer. And if you can figure out how to design experiences to help people form these intrinsic motivations with a behavior, that's where you get not only long-term behavior change, you get long-term identity change. Because fundamentally, behavior change is identity change over the long term. You know, you can, you know, be one of these people who goes to the gym, you know, right right after New Year's and says, "Okay, I'm going to get in shape this year." But we know what happens to ninety percent. We of call people. them uh, resies. The resolution. Yeah, the resolutionists. There you go. The yeah, like it, 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 like uh, the the analogy I always give the guys is it's like uh, like the Revolutionary War, like the revolutionists like coming over the hill with like the the flag, and then they all get shot in the face, like in uh, the movie in the Patriot, where he like goes over and all the get, they'll get gunned down. That's how I imagine all the resolutionists on like new year's like the, yeah. the first day in the gym they're running with the flag and then like the second day they all got shot and they're all gone mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it, it's interesting so um I, I wrote hooked five years ago and uh a couple of years ago i started getting more into fitness and uh you know i always struggled with weight and, and trying to get in shape and never enjoyed exercise my entire life and then i found this app and this is a great demonstration of how we can use the psychology behind what makes products like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube so habit-forming and sticky, how we can use this for good, I came across this app called FitBot. And I have no financial connection with the company. I just happened to come across this app called FitBot. And I said, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. Like, this is the first app that I've seen that actually uh, builds a, a gym habit. And, and by the way, previously, I wrote an article that got a lot of attention, a lot of hate mail from, from folks out there that was titled, Why Your Fitness App is Making You Fat. I, love I, it. I, did, I did not see anybody out there that I thought was actually doing a good job at this space in this space. And in fact, I think for many people, these apps were backfiring. And one of the reasons is because, you know, one of the there's there's four steps to the hooked model. And one of the steps is called a variable reward. Well, what happens with most fitness products out there, they don't give you a variable reward. They tell you, hey, guess what? You're still fat. You still haven't met your fitness goals. And that's not a variable reward. That's a variable punishment. And so people stop using the product. And FitBot actually is, is in the next edition of Hooked. We're doing a five-year edition that'll be out in the fall. And they're actually one of the case studies I put in the book because they did a tremendous job of serving those resis, right? The, wow. uh, those folks who you know, were like me, who would go to the gym. And we, we, you know, it's not, they, don't, they don't service the people who are you know, 
couch potatoes. They don't service people who already have a gym habit. They service the, the person who goes to the gym and has no clue what to do. And that was me. I would go to the gym and I have no idea. I'd see all these people seem like they know what they were doing, but I'd have no idea what I was supposed to do. And so actually, if, if you, if you want to know what the hook model is, I can actually walk you through the four steps of how they, they use the hook model. I'm hooked. Um, I'm hooked. Yeah. So every hook starts with a trigger. And we have two types of triggers. We have external triggers and internal triggers. External triggers are those pings, dings, rings, all of these things in our environment that tell us what to do next. So if you use uh, Facebook or Instagram, it's a notification that says, hey, open the app, something just happened that you should see. So with FitBot, it's a notification that says, hey, okay, this was your time of day that you said that you were going to work out. Here's the notification to get you to go to the gym. The action phase is to open the app, the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. And when you open the app, you get what's called a variable reward. Now, that variable reward we talked about earlier a little bit, this comes out of the work of B.F. Skinner. And Skinner was the father of operant conditioning. He had these amazing experiments where he took a pigeon, he put the pigeon in a little box, and he gave the pigeon a disc to peck at. And every time the pigeon pecked at the disc, they would get a little reward, a little food pellet. And at first, Skinner could get the pigeon to peck at the disc only whenever they were hungry, right? That you had to have what's called the internal trigger of hunger prompting the pigeon to peck at the disc. But he could successfully train the pigeon to do that every time they were hungry. But then one day, Skinner started to run out of these food pellets. He literally didn't have enough of them one day. So he couldn't afford to give it to the pigeon every time they pecked at the disc. He would give it to them once in a while. So sometime, the pigeon would peck at the disc and no reward, no food pellet. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times a pigeon pecked the, the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And we find this in all sorts of products that we find most engaging, the things that hook our attention most, you will always find these variable rewards. It's what makes watching sports fun. It's because you don't know the outcome, the variability. It's what makes gambling so habit forming. It's the uncertainty of what you might win. Uh, it's what makes for a good book. It's what makes for romance, right? Romance is romantic because of the uncertainty of what might happen. And of course, when we see on social media, social media is full of variable rewards. You scrolling your newsfeed uses the exact same psychology as pulling on a slot machine. So back to FitBod, the way that they use this dynamic, when you open FitBod, you're never quite sure what it's going to have for you, what your workout's going to be, how many reps, how many sets, all that stuff is in the app. And then finally, the last, and of course, by the way, that the intrinsic motivation of can I do what the app has challenged me to do? So that is also a form of variable reward. And then finally, the investment phase. So the investment phase, this is probably the most overlooked. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to make it better and more valuable with use. Okay, so if you think about the big social media companies, every time you like, comment, uh, post, re repost, you're giving the company data to make the product in real time based on your investment, okay? And that's how they customize your feed to make sure that you keep coming back. So with a product like FitBod, what they've done is every time you input the data of okay, how many sets, how many reps, all that stuff, which exercises you did, which you accomplished, which you didn't accomplish, they're using that data to prompt you through the hook next time with a custom workout. So that over time, the more you use the product, right, the investment is the data you gave the company that makes it better and better with use so that eventually, you don't even need that external trigger. Now you're using it as soon as you step in the gym with no prompting from the company. Just like how we use Facebook for emotional reasons. You talked about earlier about how we use these for emotional gratification. You don't know how right you are. The ultimate goal of every habit-forming product is to no longer need that ping or ding. What a habit-forming product wants to do is to attach itself always to a feeling. 
Because here's the thing, the basis of human motivation, we used to think it's carrots and sticks, right? This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Turns out it's not true. All human motivation comes from one thing. It's not the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's all pain. Everything we do, everything we do is from a desire to escape discomfort. Even the pursuit of something, ple of something pleasurable is itself psychologically destabilizing, right? So when we crave, when we want, when we desire, there's a reason we say love hurts. All of those feelings create discomfort we seek to escape. And so the ultimate goal of any habit-forming product, and by the way, the way we stop the bad habits that we don't want in our lives and become indistractable, starts by understanding these internal triggers that drive our behavior. So you're saying that every motivation is to, not, to avoid hardship and avoid pain? Yes. God, I must be... Uh... We, we must be completely different because, man, I like oh. uh, we try to burn ourselves down almost every single day. I mean, when I go in the gym, my whole goal is to try to, you know, like just well, man, the old fight club. No, self-destruction. Uh, yeah. I mean, hey, uh, self-improvement's masturbation. Now, self-destruction. I mean, I also, um, you know, history on me, I played in the NFL for 10 years. And, um, you know, and as I'm going through these motivations, like people have this idea for success. And I've told these guys a million times, like my motivation was always more a fear of failure. Like the fear of failure was by far my biggest motivator. Not necessarily I want to be the best or this. It's like, I don't want to lose. And the fear of losing is like what kicks me in the pants every morning to wake Isn't up. Isn't that the so avoidance of pain? You, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. So you thought you were different. Ah, I guess I'm the same. I love it. You're exactly the same. What's happened is that your pain, your physical pain threshold is lower than your psychological pain threshold. And so it's that psychological fear that you were looking to escape that drove you through that physiological pain, but it's still pain. Interesting. Hmm. Not special. Well-worn. What do you think about that? Uh, dude, I, uh, um, pain is not necessarily, um, maybe it's an emotional pain as I was thinking about that. Like physical pain doesn't bother me in a single little bit, but maybe like the, the pain of humiliation and like the fear of failure mm -hmm. and like fucking looking like an asshole in front of millions of people is a, uh, extremely, Motivating, powerful yeah. motivating factor that I think uh, a lot of people just like for some reason in those situations, everything got real calm and real quiet and just uh, made a lot of sense, but it only happened in those most stressful situations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the lesson here is, you know, a lot of people are told in the self-help personal development industry that if you're not satisfied, if you're not happy all the time, something's wrong with you and nothing could be further from the truth. That, I think that's that, such bullshit. It's total bullshit. Yeah. And it, it's a myth that gets perpetuated and, and almost to the point of pathologizing this problem. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Our species is designed a tribe of homo sapiens who were satisfied and happy all the time. Those people were probably killed and eaten by our ancestors. Right? Dude, was, uh, this is the <laughs> Matrix. Don't, don't you remember in uh, the Matrix when they talk about um, when they first designed the original Matrix that they tried to make everybody successful and happy and it failed and they lost the whole crop and then they realized they had to build hardship in and struggle and pain and all these other things to be able to keep people within that deal. Uh, that's why I realize more and more that the Matrix is a documentary. Uh, uh, there, there are uh, like there's certain things that I like, and I, and I can go back and I can remember like pivotal points in my life seeing different movies. One of them, obviously, I remember I was in college and saw Fight Club. I remember the Matrix, but other than that other one of like you know that movie being so impactful as uh, realizing like God is this 
is this really how people are that, uh, you know, if you were to, you know, make somebody successful and then we, we see it all the time with people who are very, very successful and then their children who have everything end up amounting to nothing and becoming like the worst versions of themselves because there's no struggle and without struggle, there's no victory. So if everything's handed to you and you don't have to put in the work, then like, how do you ever really have enjoyment? I used to hang with these uh, billionaire dudes and I remember having this strange realization to realize I stopped hanging out with them because, um, I realized that to appreciate and have a good meal, you've had to have a crappy meal. Mm. Uh, to appreciate a really nice car and to take care of it, it's because you've had a shitty car and you've had something that, you, you know, like you've also had to earn it. And if everything's been given to you and every meal's been a five-star and every car's been a Bentley or, or a Mercedes or a Ferrari, you have no appreciation because you have no perspective. And I realized hanging out with these dudes, I'm like, these guys are the biggest pieces of shit on the planet. And it's because... They've never had hardship. They've never had struggle and everything's been handed and they have no perception. And I was like, this is a weird existence and something I don't want to be around. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's why you hang out with us, Jamokes. Well, no, yeah. but uh, I, I, I remember Jamokes like Tex. Well, I uh, like I remember uh, talking. I'm like, God, man, like uh, airport security is a motherfucker. And they're like, uh, we don't know. What's we that? we have a private jet. <laughs> we we've, we've never flown uh, commercial. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, like, like shit like that. And you're like, you know, you can go yeah. fuck yourself. Like, but that, that kind of strange realization that, you know, if you don't have struggle, if you don't have some hardship, then how are you ever able to appreciate stuff? And I think what's interesting with the training, um, what we've encountered, which is what exactly you're saying is that most people, when they walk into a gym are intimidated because they don't really know what to do. And like, if they had something and, and a lot of times, you know, they, it's some, you know, a uh, personal trainer making 12 bucks an hour who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And he's just, you know, barking orders and telling you what to do, but like actually being able to go through an experience where not only like, do the people know what they're talking about? They allow you to reap the benefits that people really want. They, they want to feel success. They want to feel able, they want to feel this. And I think a lot of people where they really struggle and maybe you can identify this better is uh, a lot of people um, struggle with the idea of being a beginner and, mm-hmm. and like new to something. Whereas like for me, uh, like but that comes like fear uh, of failure dude, is associated uh, with that. But, uh, but I love the idea of like, uh, I, I wrote a blog post called like always be a white belt. Like I, I love the idea of being, um, like having no knowledge and then the, the process of learning something. And I think people just like instantly, I deal with this with my kids all the time. Like, well, well why can't I just read well? And I'm like, well, have you put in the time? Have we stumbled on these things? And they're like, no, I just, and they get frustrated. They don't know stuff. I'm like, you're six years old, you're seven. Why would you know these things? Yeah. yeah. Cut yourself a break. Give yourself time. I love, I love how you're, uh, what you know as folk psychology has analogs in the actual psychology literature. So what you described earlier with those billionaires is called hedonic adaptation. That and this is one of the ways that our psychology screws us. That our 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 we are designed to never be happy for long. Happiness and pleasure is designed to just be fleeting, because the brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. That's what prompts us to action in the future by creating that uncomfortable state. So hedonic adaptation is exactly what you said. We know studies have found doesn't really matter what happens to you in life, you tend to go back to a baseline of happiness. And we've seen this exemplified people who win the lottery, right? They get really happy for a little while, and then they tend to go back to baseline. People who are injured and find themselves in a wheelchair, also same story, they get really unhappy for a while and then go back to baseline as well. And so this is one of the ways, you know, we think that something is gonna make us happy, is gonna make us fulfilled, but at the end of the day, really the way we are designed is to never be happy for all that long. But that's not necessarily, a bad thing, what I would propose is that we need to get comfortable with this fact that we are perpetually uncomfortable 
and use that, channel that feeling to productive aims as opposed to letting it drive us to distraction. Because how you deal with that discomfort can either drive you towards doing what you want to do or you know, escaping reality by putzing around on YouTube or getting into booze or whatever number of other distractions that take you off track. Is, and, is it because um, we don't really have much hardship? Uh, like, uh, you know, I was um, uh, one of the guys I, I hung out with this weekend, uh, like another dad, uh, they have a charity where they're building schools in Africa. So they, they went to Tanzania and they're, they're building all these schools. And I was just asking him about some of the problems. And he's like, well, we have a huge problem with some of the kids. Like we had to get them buses because uh, as they were going to where the, the bus was picking them up, they there was either a good chance that uh, in parts of the year they'd be attacked by a lion or they'd get picked up by uh, human uh, traffickers. So they had to like learn to evade at certain times of the year and like they was going through it. And I'm thinking like, man, um, if all of us, it's real. Yeah. I'm like, if all of a sudden your life, uh, like, so, Hey, to get to the school bus, I have to either avoid lions or human traffickers. Like, I think that people really aren't ups, like concerned with likes on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I some, uh, one criticism I've heard about my book about indistractable is, uh, you know, this seems hard. You know, like, I got I got to I got to manage my phone account and I got to take steps to do this stuff. That seems like a lot of work. Right. Shouldn't the tech companies just being doing this for me? Why don't we just legislate those tech companies, those big, bad companies like Facebook and Google and Instagram, make them please make your products less engaging because you know what? I like to use them too much. Netflix, can you please make some boring shows? Because I don't like the fact that I like to watch all your shows so much. <laughs> and so my response is, you know, welcome to 2019, right? You don't have to chop your own wood to heat your house. You don't have to kill your own food. I'm asking you to do a few simple steps, like change your notification settings, make a schedule, like a few basic things that turns out can revolutionize your life and free you from this constant tyranny of distraction. Do you think if people were chopping their own wood and maybe hunting their own animals and like living uh, a little bit more of a simplistic, like, um, you know, had a little bit more balance associated with it? I feel that uh, a lot of people are so tech enabled into everything. Like, I don't want to turn on my lights anymore. I'm going to use my app. And I'm like, dude, if the day that I don't have to walk around the house turning off lights, yelling at my kids and I can just get an app like, yeah, I was like, man, that'd be great. But then I wouldn't be able to tell him, ask him if I'm Thomas. Well, you're going to complain about that. Well, yeah, I was like, I go around the house. I'm like, who do you guys think we are? Thomas Jefferson or uh, uh, Thomas Edison? I'm sorry. So uh, Kierkegaard said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And I think, you know, he said that over 100 years ago. And I think that, that really epitomizes our age. We have so much freedom that we are dizzy from all this freedom. I mean, you have endless articles to read online, endless YouTube videos, endless you know, uh, information that you could access at your fingertips to keep you occupied all day long. We have tremendous freedom. The price of that is that we are anxious from all that freedom, as, King, as Kierkegaard said. And so we need to, I don't want to go back to an age where we have less, I don't feel like chopping my wood to heat my house every day. I don't want to kill my dinner every night. I mean, you know, it might be fun once, but I, you get the, that gets old real fast. Uh, the price of progress is that we need to know how to live with these technologies, not to be a, a Luddite and say, okay, shut these companies down. I'm never going to use them again because that's silly. I mean, we get so much benefit. I mean, look, right now we are talking thousands of miles away on this magic telescreen that allows us to, to have this conversation for free. <laughs> it's amazing. I and mean, this is science fiction. If you would have told me that this existed when I was a kid, it would have blown my mind. Sure. And uh, here, here we are using it today. So the idea is not to, you know, not to excise it from our life, not to go on these silly, you know, digital detox programs. That doesn't work. 
The idea here is to learn how to get the best of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. Hang on, what's a digital detox program? This is the first okay. thing I'm, yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested. It's exactly what it sounds like. And so when I was obese, I would do this. Dude, uh, uh, well, give us some measurements now. How tall are you? I'm six foot. Six foot. How old? Yeah, I am 41. 41. And you weighed at one point how much? Uh, this is when I was uh, I was going into high school. I weighed more than I do now. And I was a whole lot shorter. Uh, so I was I was a big boy. <laughs> um, uh, do, you, do you remember how much you weighed? You know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't remember. I remember I used to go to the swimming pool and I would never take off my shirt. I never mm -hmm. wanted anyone to see my belly. And I grew up in Florida, so we were always at the swimming pool and I never wanted anyone to see. And I remember we actually, my mom took me to a doctor and I remember that chart where he said, okay, you know, here's the, here's the weight chart. Here's you, here's overweight and here's obese. And here's you on that chart. And, uh, they sent me to fat camp the whole nine oh, wow. yards. Not, not how, a fun time. How much, uh, how much do you weigh now? Now I weigh uh, 180. 180, okay. Yeah. yeah. So pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> so the digital detox is then yeah. what? You just avoid your phone? Is that what it is? It's uh, so so the program is very similar to what people tell you to, to do. I th I think incorrectly when it comes to your nutrition, right? right? That uh, drink a bunch of lime juice days. or something. <laughs> yeah, thirty days do nothing but Tabasco and vinegar, or thirty. You know, I used to do this all the time. Thirty days no junk food, or thirty days no this, no that. And you know what happens on day thirty one, right? <laughs> Crazy. That's yeah. what I did time and time again. These yo yo diets. And so what people are proposing today as the way to get our kids and get ourselves off of technology is to, you know, detox, do a digital detox, get it out of your life. And that doesn't work either because it doesn't address the root cause. When I was, when I was fat, it was because I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I was eating for emotional reasons, right? I was eating my feelings. And, and a lot of people who are obese have that, that issue. Uh, and the same goes for our technology. When we are overusing our technology, you know, if, if, if you or your kids can't sit down at the dinner table without someone taking out their phone, uh, if you find yourself in a business meeting and some, you know, people are checking their devices or whatever it might be, let me tell you, the real problem is not the device in your hand. It's what's going on inside your head. So are we getting into the root cause versus proximate cause that you talked about in Distractable? That's right. That's right. So the root cause. So let, let so let's so we talked about the model for hook. Let me tell you about the model for indistractable. So let's start with okay, the fundamental question of this book is why do we do things we shouldn't do? And we talked about how things used to be in the past when we had to cut our own wood and hunt our own animals. Turns out distraction's not a new problem. In fact, Aristotle and Socrates 2500 years ago were talking about how distracting the world is. They called it acrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. So this is what fascinated me over the past 5 years of research why, despite knowing what we should do, why don't we do it? Why do we do things against our better interest? And so that was the fundamental question. So to answer that, we have to go a level deeper. Why do we do anything? And as we talked about earlier, all of our behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. Now, our actions can lead us either towards distraction or the opposite of distraction is traction. The opposite of distraction is not focus, it's traction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same five letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action that you take that pulls you away from what you want to do with intent. So now we have the four parts. We have internal triggers, we have external triggers, and those things prompt us to either traction 
or distraction. So the idea here, I'm not going to tell you what your value should be, what you should do with your time. That's for you to decide. What I want to help people do is whatever it is that they decide is important for them in their lives, I want them to help, I want to help fulfill the, the, those values by helping people live out those values by doing what they say they're going to do, as opposed to letting their attention and their lives be controlled by outside influences. So what's the trick? What do we do? Yeah. What's what's the hack? Yeah, what do we do? Like, do I take a pill? I'm assuming it's a pill, or is it is it an app? Is, yeah, is there an app that has a program? It, yeah, there's an 800 number I'm going to give you here. Just okay, now. awesome. <laughs> so the first step is to master the internal triggers. It just as we you know started the episode, you kind of gave away the punchline, but the 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 most important step is to realize that we have to learn how to cope with that discomfort. Anytime we do something we don't intend to do, anything that we are, anytime we are taken off track, if we don't get to the root cause, right? If we don't understand that the reason we are doing everything is to escape discomfort, it doesn't matter what life hack I give you. It doesn't matter what any productivity guru tells you to do. You will always get distracted by something if you don't have strategies to cope with that internal trigger. And there are several things we can do to, to make sure that we uh, can master those internal triggers in our life. The second step is to make time for traction. So uh, when I was writing this book, I had, I had a good friend who said, oh, you, you wrote Hooked. And uh, you see, now I'm so distracted because I'm constantly using my phone. And uh, this is, you know, I can't get anything done because of what's happening in the news. And my boss wants this and my kids wants that. And Donald Trump said this and this and I can't get anything done. And I said, wow, that's, that's really tough. You know, can I, can I see what it is you wanted to do today? What did you get distracted from exactly today? And she took out her phone and she opened up her calendar app and she showed it to me and it was blank. There's nothing on it. Turns out that two thirds of Americans don't keep a schedule. So here's the thing. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. And if you don't plan your day these days, the fact is they're going to get you, right? These products, I'm telling you from as an insider, these products are designed to be habit forming. I'm not, I help build some of these products. And I'm telling you, if you leave that time available for just anyone to steal that time away, and because you haven't planned what you want to do with that time, well, don't be surprised, right? Your kids are going to take up that time. Your boss is going to take up that time. The news, Facebook, ESPN, somebody's going to eat up that time if you don't decide what you want to do with it. So this is where we have to turn our values into time, right? If you value physical fitness, where's the time on your schedule? If you value time with your family, where's the time on your schedule? If you value time with your friends, with your work, whatever it is that you need to do that's consistent with your values, as opposed to people making these highfalutin goals of, oh, someday I'll write a novel or someday I'll win a competition, where is that time on your schedule? And so that's, that's the second step. And there's lots of things that we can do there. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. So this is the kind of stuff that most people think about when they think about distraction. They think about the pings, dings, rings, all of these things that take us off track with some kind of external stimulus. Well, it turns out that, yes, there's stuff you can do on your phone, like change your notification settings. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone never do that. Okay, did you hear that? Two-thirds of people with a smartphone never adjust their notification settings. That's crazy, right? It takes you 10 minutes, and you're going to reap so much extra time by mm -hmm. not letting all these stupid apps So what do you do? You. Like you turn off all your notifications? You ask yourself this question, is the trigger serving me or am I serving it? So if the notification on you your phone, that? yeah, keep going. Yeah. So if a notification on your phone says, Hey, it's time to go to that workout. It's time for that meeting. It's time to spend time with your kids, whatever it is that you plan to do. Well, now it's moving you towards traction, mm -hmm. right? Traction is any behavior that pulls you towards what you want to do. Something you plan to do with intent. 
But if you get a ping on your phone and you're with your kid or you're at the gym or you're in a meeting and it makes you check your device in the middle of something that is, is not what you wanted to do, well, now it's pulling you towards distraction. Mm -hmm. So of course, we got to change the notification settings on our phone. I show you exactly how to do that on our computer. We also have to do it in all of these settings that we don't think about, but are just as much of a pernicious distraction. For example, the open floor plan office, right? So many people these days work in, an, in open floor plans where we're constantly distracted by other people that take us off track. And so there's, there's a, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, when I was researching this book, I came across this amazing study of, of uh, nurses at UCSF. They discovered that hundreds of thousands of people in the United States every year are harmed when nurses give them the wrong medication inside the hospital setting. Okay. And what it turns out that these nurses, when they were giving people the wrong medication, when they were making these mistakes, which is by the way, a completely preventable human error, they were doing this because they were getting distracted. They were interrupted by a colleague, by a patient, and they were messing up when they were dosing out medication. And of course, we do this all the time. We don't realize how much better our work output would be if we could simply focus on one task at a time. So these nurses came up with a brilliant solution. They reduced prescription mistakes by 88%. And they did this, not with some multi-million dollar program, not with some fancy new app. The solution was cheap plastic vests. They wore these red vests that said, medication rounds in progress, please do not disturb. And this reduced prescription mistakes by 88%. And so what can we learn from this as knowledge workers, right? For people who work in an open floor plan office, what we need to do is to use what's called a screen sign. So in every copy of the book, I give people a piece of card stock, they pull out of the book, they fold it into thirds, and they put it on their computer monitor to tell their colleagues, hey, I'm indistractable right now, please come back later. And you will not believe, you know, just like these nurses, you don't realize how much better your work output can be when you can focus on doing one thing at a time. So that's all about hacking back external triggers. I tell people how to hack back email, how to hack back meetings, all of these environments where we can lead to distraction because of these dangerous external triggers that lead to distraction. And then finally, the last step, and then we can dive deep if you want in any of the four, is to prevent distraction with PACTS. So PACTS is another ancient technique, uh, the first Example of people using a pact comes from the Odyssey that was written by Homer 2,500 years ago. In the Odyssey, there's this, this guy, Ulysses, who has to sail his ship past the island of the Sirens. And the Sirens are these mythical creatures that sing this magical song, and anybody who hears it crashes their ship onto the shores of the island and dies. So Ulysses knows this is going to happen, and he does something about it. He tells his crew to put wax inside their ears so that they can't hear the siren song, and he tells them to bind him to the mast of the ship. And he tells them, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, don't let me go. And you know what? It works. He sails his ship right past the island of the sirens and safely home. So we can use this exact same lesson in our own lives in three ways. A, an identity pact. An effort pact is when you put some bit of friction between you and the distraction, right? So for example, in my household, um, I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you guys. Okay, I'm going to tell you about my sex life. Is that all right? Bring it. Is it is it, it, this isn't a family show, right? No, not, so, no, not no. even close. Right. Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been married for almost 20 years, so I'm just happy I have a sex life. And let me tell you, <laughs> uh, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were just having no time for intimacy. And we realized it was because every night we'd go to bed and she would fondle her iPhone and I'd be playing with my iPad. And we weren't going to sleep on time, so we weren't taking care of our physical health in terms of getting enough sleep. And we weren't 
we didn't have time to be intimate with each other. And so what did I do? I implemented one of these effort packs. I went to the hardware store and I got myself a $5 outlet timer. And this outlet timer turns on and off anything you plug into it at a certain time of day or night. So 10 p.m. in my household, every night, the internet router shuts off, 10 p.m. So I've made a pact with myself and my family that the internet, we all know the internet turns off at 10 p.m. Now, could we turn it back on? Of course we could. I could go under my desk, I'll fidget with my router, I'll take out the plug. Yeah, I could do that. But I've inserted some bit of effort between me and something I don't want to do. Okay, that's an effort pact. The second type of pact is called a price pact. So what, the way I got into fitness for the first time in my life was using what's called the burn or burn technique. And here's how it works. So the burn or burn technique works like this. Go every, every morning when I go to my closet, I see my calendar. And on my calendar is taped a crisp $100 bill. Above the calendar is a lighter. And every day I have a choice to make. I can either burn the $100 bill or I need to go burn some calories with some kind of physical activity. Now, I've been doing this for three and a half years. And I have never had to burn the $100 bill. But what I've done is entered into a price pact with myself that if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, if I get distracted, there's a financial penalty. This has actually been shown to be the most effective smoking cessation technique ever studied. So that, those are price packs. And there's other examples of that as well. So you've and never burned the 100 Never had to burn the hundred. When I tell this story, people are like, "Oh, that's crazy! Well, I don't want to burn the hundred dollars." Of course, you don't want to burn the hundred dollars. So you've never, uh, like, in the last three years, you've never missed a single day of working out. So you work out seventy. Yeah, you do always right, do something. Right. I, I always do something: forty push-ups, go on a walk for a couple miles, do something uh, every day. Wow, that's great. I, I, I had a, a a good friend of ours who was a client of mine for a long time, who has who had not missed a workout, like a training workout. Uh, and I think it was like minimum of like a mile walk in like seven or eight years. This is Brasky. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was, it was pretty amazing. I remember he was super sick and he like called me from like a hotel he was in and he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it. And he somehow got up and went out and walked a mile on the treadmill. And he's like, he, he, you know, the, the, the streak had continued. And I just yeah. remember thinking like, dude, that's amazing. <clears throat> By the way, not everybody has to do this, right? My values are not your values. You should do what's ever consistent with your values. And if it's six days a week or five days a week or whatever, the idea here is that if the price is high enough, it has to hurt, you're going to do this. I did this. I took a bet with my buddy, Mark, uh, when I had done four years of research for Indistractable and I had to start actually writing. So I shook his hand and I said, Mark, if I don't finish this book by January 1st, my first manuscript, I'm going to pay you $10,000. And of course, you know the result. I have the book and I kept my $10,000, right? And I didn't have to spend a penny on that because I entered into a price pack that made sure I did what I said I'm going to do. Uh, by the way, word of warning, this comes last, okay? Some people, I know somebody's going to hear this and go, oh, that's amazing. I'm going to do that right now and I'm going to make a bet with myself and I'll win Mr. Olympia or something. No, no, no. You have to first do the other stuff. Master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers. Then this is the last technique, because if you do this too soon, it can backfire. you got to do the other steps first. Um, but there's one, one more method I'll tell you about real quick, which is an identity pact. And we talked about this a little bit about how behavior changes, identity change. You know, if you can use your identity in, in a way that helps keep you consistent with your behaviors, and this is why I'm wearing a t-shirt that says indistractable, because this is my new moniker, right? This is the kind of way I see myself. And this comes out of research in terms of the psychology of religion. Right. Uh, so, so I used to be a vegetarian for five years, and when I was a vegetarian, yeah, I know, it's a, I, I'm no longer. It's a miserable but, existence. Right. So when I was, however, let me tell you, it wasn't hard to not eat meat. 
because I was a vegetarian, right? If you t uh, ask a devout Muslim and you say, oh, okay, you know, you, they're not thinking about eating ham sandwiches every day because devout Muslims don't eat pork. It's just what they do. It's part of who they are. And so if you can form an identity, you know, is that joke, how do you know someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> and you can, you can substitute keto or CrossFit, you know, you can substitute any identity because your identity, you think it's not just about telling other people, it's about reinforcing your own identity of the kind of person you are. And so you can use this technique called an identity pact to make sure that you stay on track and consistent with your goals. Yeah, our uh, power athlete pact <laughs> is a trichotomy of money, food, and shame. So whenever the challenges come out, that's uh, that tends to be like, okay, a little bit yeah. from column A, a little bit from column B, and a little I, bit from column C. I found that those three were the greatest... Um, motivating factors I'd ever found was uh, money, food, and shame. Like, hey, like, uh, like if we're going to do this, there's got to be a dinner. There's got to be some humiliation, and there has to be some form of monetary thing on the line. We did a deal where it was uh, what we call 22 Jack Street. Uh -huh. uh, we either, either had to lose 10% of your body weight or gain 10% of their body weight. And uh, <laughs> Luke, <laughs> those were the days. Uh, Luke, uh, dude, like 250 pounds of just chewed bubble gum and poor text. Chewed oh. bubble gum, man. I was carved out of oh, out of butter. Bolsa. Oh. <laughs> uh, dude, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It's really pretty. Yeah, near, pretty so to give you some perspective, John is six foot five, and I think at the time was 295, 300 pounds. Yeah, right. Close. And then I'm five ten, five ten. And I was 220, 215, 215 220. Yeah. And it originally started, uh, John and I were sitting in an office in Newport Beach. And I'm like, I bet you I could beat you to 260. <laughs> so it's just going to be an all-out race. <laughs> mano y mano. And then, uh, you know, that purely, it's like pure self-destruction on yeah. either end of that aisle. But, um, but I, got, it, I got to 268, and then Luke got to... Yeah, it turned into something a little more productive where he's like, let's put some nutrition behind it. Let's put yeah. some training behind it. Here's the goal. Let's, this is realistic. You have 20 weeks. Do that, do, 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 do. So... And then you got to what, 258? 252 is my highest, but I think I weighed in at 247 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, wow. I hit uh, 218. I put on 12 pounds of muscle, <laughs> but I couldn't run worth shit. Yeah, yeah you yeah. look like a big Oompa Loompa. <laughs> yeah. Those were the days. Yeah, it was... Uh, oh, I, I, uh, the hilarious part was the day before we weighed in was my birthday, and which I thought was just mm, my great. irony. Great and party. so we went to a party, and I'm sitting there, and uh, I was like a few pounds away from hitting my number. And so I'm over there like eating ice chips. Mm -hmm. And uh, Luke's over there just smashing yeah, these like taco bar. Brilliant taco bar there. These just like perfect street. So Southern California street tacos. <laughs> I mean, the Al Pastor and carne asada. Luke's I must have had 25. Dude, yeah. He's just smashing these tacos. <laughs> and my mom is over there talking trash. She's like, she's like, I don't know. She's like, you look like you have like, you're sick. You're all skinny. Look at Luke. He looks great. He's over here eating tacos. And Luke's like, <laughs> a taco. Time. Yeah, he's got a taco over his face. He's like, <laughs> Great. Put maple great. syrup on. Oh, dude. yeah, you got to oh. syrup up those tacos. Oh, dude, it was. Uh, but I, I think the most interesting thing was letting somebody eat with that form of reckless abandon, like Luke did. He's like, I don't think I'm ever. Yeah, I, I, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, it, it opened so a bit of a tangent, but because we work with folks on be, changing behavior and, and identity, almost when when they want to lean out and lose weight, and then, uh, but. Occasionally, people come in and want to gain weight, yeah. right? They're, they're just been smaller dudes or mostly dudes. Some, sometimes, like, Ashley tried to gain weight for a little bit. But yeah, for like one day. It, gaining weight is, is as hard, if not harder, than losing weight. Like, because 
there is a you're cultivating new mass. It's hard to explain unless you've gone 22 weeks of just smashing food beyond uh, the point where you were full. You know, and it just gets to a point Dude. where you, you, cause there is like a bit of an emotional and gratifying, uh, outcome from a meal that you really enjoy. But when you're eating it to excess, like you, you, you remove that and then you like, what, what's there to make you happy then? Uh, so, um, nothing as a <laughs> football player, like I always had to try to gain weight. And I remember, uh, I, I was like 165 pounds when I started lifting weights. And I think that next year I was like 200 pounds and then I was like 220 and then I was 240. And then I went to college and I was like 255 and then they were like, you got to weigh 285. And then I finally got to like 300 and then 310. And so I gained like in the course of probably, man, that would have to be like eight, eight years. I, I went from 165 to like 310. And so I had the, and I also grew six inches. So it's not like I was the same height. So I grew six inches, lifted weights. I got bigger and stronger. I mean, I squatted 600 before I was 19 and I benched 500 before I was 22. So I was a big, strong dude, but like taking every meal as like my job is to eat, to pass the point of full, to try to overeat so I can try to gain weight. And then you follow that almost for a decade of your life. And it's like, you get to the point where people are like, it's a great, you eat everything. I'm like, I don't want to eat anything. <laughs> I'm more than happy to like, never like people are like, Oh, this is great. I'm like, yeah, it's great. I just, after you've eaten to that excess, it's yeah. just like, I'm more than happy to be hungry. And I know like people all the time, are like I, I just can't deal, be able, deal with being hungry. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I look forward to when I'm hungry. Like it's, um, it, it's the strangest thing. Like, you know, uh, what's the age old, um, Oh, like, uh, be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. You know, that idea of like, Oh, I would eat everything in this. And then all of a sudden you do it and you're like, I don't want to eat anything. I'm good. Mm-hmm. So near, why is it that, uh, you know, there's this sequential order. Why do we have to tackle those internal triggers first before we can get into like these pacts. Yeah, because um, if we don't, if we jump ahead, then the true sources of distraction haven't been removed. So pacts are a great way to keep yourself in once you have the tools to master the internal triggers that constantly come up in life, right? We talked about hedonic adaptation and boredom, anxiety, uncertainty, like all of these things conspire to, to make you feel uncomfortable. And of course, the reaction and what your body wants to do when it feels discomfort is to act, to do something to relieve discomfort. And if it's something productive, great, but many times it's something unproductive that leads to distraction. So that, that has to be the first technique because uh, if you just jump into the pact without building that skill set of knowing what you're going to do when you feel discomfort, uh, then it's, it's going to backfire. And, and what happens many times is when people do uh, find that they fail on one of these pacts, if they haven't built up the other skills and taken these other steps first, many people fall hard, right? When they fall off the horse, they blame themselves. They say, I'm weak. I have a poor attention span. I have an addictive personality. There must be something wrong with me. And look, some people do suffer from some of these pathologies, right? Some people do have obsessive compulsive disorder or an addiction disorder. That does exist, of course. But that's about 1% to 5% of the population. So the vast majority of people, there's nothing wrong with them. They just have this negative self-talk that keeps them down. Uh, and so if you haven't taken those other steps, then you, you, you are setting yourself up for disaster. And this, I believe, is going to lead into the question I wanted to ask here. So comparing the self-compassion that you talk about in Indistractable with our self-help industry, and we called that out earlier. So if you can explain more the the principles or the bullet points to get across with self-compassion 
and yeah. how or where self the help the self help industry may be falling off if they're only staying in packs and their person's not ready for those packs. That right, industry right. fascinates me, so I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the one of the things that we can do to master internal triggers is to reimagine our temperament. And and what I'm trying to do here is to fight some of the. Uh, it used to be real psychology. Now it's fo- folk psychology. There's a lot of myths out there that we tell ourselves uh, that that make distraction more likely to occur. One of these myths is that willpower is a limited resource. A lot of people think this. They think, oh, I've been working so hard. I used to do this. I'll, I'll tell you a first person example. I would come home from work and say, oh, I've had a really tough day today. I've got no more willpower left. Give me that Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? And and I would do this day after day because I was spent. And it turns out a few years ago, there's actually research that that verified that type of phenomenon, that there was this idea called ego depletion that said that willpower is like gas in the tank and that eventually you run out of willpower. Turns out it's not true. (laughs) <laughs> that other psychologists thought, oh, that sounds a little fishy. They replicated this particular uh, research, and meta studies have found that this effect doesn't exist. That re- that willpower is not a limited resource. It does not run out uh, like gas in a gas tank, except for in one group of people. There was a study done by Carol Dweck at Stanford that found that some people do actually experience ego depletion, and those people are people who believe in ego depletion. So if you're the kind of person who believes that your willpower is spent, right, you will act accordingly. And so what we find is there are all these self-limiting beliefs, which are really helping us do the distractions and and go off track from our our larger goals. You know, we know uh, that, that the number one determinant of whether an alcoholic is able to stay sober after rehab is not their level of physical dependency. It's not the level of alcohol in their bodies. It's not what's happening inside their body. It's what's happening in their brain. The number one determinant of whether an alcoholic will recover after treatment is their belief in their own power to do so. And so this is why I'm on a mission to fight this nonsense that technology is hijacking your brain, that it's making you do stuff, that it's, you know, it, it, it's uh, addicting everyone. It does addict some people. Any, any analgesic, anything that solves pain is potentially addictive to someone. People get addicted to fitness too. But anything that solves pain is potentially addictive. But for the vast majority of people, we do have control if we believe that we have the power to actually do something about it. And so that's why we need to change some of these very uh, prevalent self-limiting beliefs out there. But isn't it easier just to blame it on somebody else? Like, I feel like that's like perpetuates our society now that everything's everybody else's fault. And I see this, I mean, social media is riddled with this where people fearing or like no longer taking personal responsibility. Like um, my favorite one is uh, we do a ton of diet stuff and we work with people on diets. And this has always been something that we've, um, done like even though the training space is really what I kind of you know it was real jiggy for me and what I really enjoy but the nutrition counseling and helping people with their food is uh is like is is a big piece of it and for geez um I retired from the NFL in 09 and I'm, I've been doing this for the last 10 years and as I would sit down and counsel people and be like you know at the end of the day like it's impossible to beat the law of thermodynamics if you consume more calories and a calorie is just a unit uh, like a measurement of energy if you consume more of this than what you burn eventually 
you will end up putting on more mass. And like if we can manage, and uh, Tom Furman said it best, if you can manage a spreadsheet, you can get in shape. And it's always been the case. But then we run into people and it's like, well, these foods don't work with my body or my metabolism and this. And I, I got into it with this lady about this who told me she couldn't lose weight and blamed it on every single extraneous, like anything you could ever want. Well, you know, it's gut, it's, you know, and I was like, all right, well, let me, um, I'm going to, uh, and so I, I actually, probably one of the worst ones I did was I uh, downloaded some pictures and it was some before and afters of uh, people in the Holocaust. And I was like, this is pretty awful stuff. But like, this is what these people look like healthy. And this is what they look like being eating nothing. And I'm like, they're all the same. And I remember showing this, I'm like, if you, st- if you, we can monitor this stuff, like there's no gut dysfunction or like all these problems tend to kind of subside. And, uh, it just was amazing where the personal responsibility of being like, I overconsume calories and getting that person to that point, um, they would never do it because they never could take the personal responsibility. And I, uh, like at the end of the day, you're the one, nobody's going to go work out for you. Nobody's going to be able to feed you. Nobody's going to be able to make these decisions. You have to have this personal responsibility. And I think today it's so easy just to blame it on everybody else. Yeah. yeah, And I ended up firing this client because of it. I'm like, until you can actually (laughs) take personal responsibility and say to me, hey, and and if you come to me and say, hey, I can't do it. Can we do it together? Is there a strategy? I'll help you. But if you keep fucking blaming somebody else uh, other than yourself, then there's nothing I can do for you. So I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, and there there are, look, there are some deceptive practices out there. I mean, especially, you know, if you look at the food industry, you know, one thing that kills me is you see these labels that say uh, evaporated cane juice. Well, that, that's clearly deceptive, right? I don't know if the average person knows that that's, that's sugar. definition of sugar, right? But that's, that's, that's clearly a lie. <laughs> so that's pretty deceptive. And I'm surprised there's no law against that. Um, but, you know, blaming food companies for making food delicious, that's their job. Of course, they're going to make food. Do we want them to make bland food? What company is going to stay in business if they just make food that nobody wants to eat? We want companies to make food delicious. So of course, yeah. you know, a, a huge part of it is making sure that companies are transparent and aren't trying to trick people. But also we, there is a huge element of, of personal responsibility. And the same goes when it comes to our tech distractions. Yeah, there are some things that the industry does that, that I do oppose, right? The, the, the tech industry is not lily white when it comes to, uh, you know, election meddling, when it comes to privacy incursions. I mean, Facebook is kind of a dumpster fire these days. But when it comes to this issue of, you know, do we have control over our behavior? Is this mind control? Is this addicting everyone? No. This is something we can certainly do something about if we know how. And you, uh, I, I want to not to cut you off text, but uh, um, the piece on you said about fa- uh, Facebook being a dumpster fire. Uh, is it because um, too much power? Is the idea that like because it's so plugged in that it just kind of absolute power corrupts absolutely? No, I, th- I think they're babies. I mean, this company is, uh, what is it now, 13 years old? It's a teen. It's a preteen. And I think we, our relationship with these technologies is also emblematic of a teenager who, you know, we all got drunk on these technologies, uh, like a a teenager getting drunk for the first time on, you know, raiding the parents' liquor cabinet. And now we woke up with a hangover and we say to ourselves, again, we should legislate these companies out of existence, right? Let's just not use them at all. And that's not the right answer for booze, and it's not the right answer for social media. That look, you know, there's nothing wrong with alcohol. There's nothing wrong with knowing how to use it responsibly. Now, some people do become addicted to alcohol, obviously, but 
not everyone does. And it's ridiculous to go back into these days of prohibition because I think that nobody should drink. Well, that's, I don't sure. want to live in that kind of world. And the same goes for our technology. These companies are babies. They're, they're, they do have a ton of market power. And I think that's actually a real issue is figuring out how to perhaps break them up or you know, their, their monopoly status is certainly a problem. But you know, the, the conversation, the narrative these days is that they are doing it to us. There's nothing we can do. And I think that's, that's rubbish. That's ridiculous. There's some very easy steps for what we can do to make sure that they're, they're not uh, uh, unduly influencing our day-to-day -day behavior. Now, the, the thing is, you get a lot of attention and a lot of clicks when you say technology is addictive, mm -hmm. right? Because addiction means that there's a dealer, there's a pusher, there's mind control, right? When you call it what it is, for the vast majority of people, overuse. Well, now, oh my gosh, now, wait, overuse? That means I could do something about it. And as you said, that's that's not so comfortable for folks. That's a lot harder to digest. That's a much more nuanced story than, oh, it's mind control and it's addicting me. So here in Texas, September 1st, just put all the new laws into place. I don't know if you guys heard them, but one of them is uh, now it's a crime to send unsolicited uh, dick pics to people. And so what happened was, I guess, on dating apps, and I don't know, because I've been married and I was I got married before all the dating app stuff. But um, I guess on dating apps, people send unsolicited nudes of each other. And now that can depended on on, uh, I guess, the extreme e extremeness of it. Uh, it's either can go from a misdemeanor and like they had like listing all this stuff. And I just remember thinking, like, if you're on a dating app, like, isn't that kind of what you're there for? Like, isn't it like, it just seems like, uh, if you don't want to get that stuff, you probably just, I don't know, text. I mean, probably some of us are there to get married, John. Well, John, uh, all it, all that means is you <laughs> got before you send the dick pic, you got to say, Hey, heads up. Hey, uh, Dick's coming no, in. no, right? no unsolicited. So they have to ask for the dick pic uh, for you to send can you it. ask them to ask. Hey, can you ask a lot me of to legal send loopholes it? here? Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering. <laughs> and then I'm wondering how, I mean, uh, like, there must be a lot of junk pictures going for them to actually legislate this thing in. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to the <laughs> psychology. Text, uh, take us down this road. I mean, is this something that you do a lot? Yeah, this is connected to oh, that was my a yes. next question. So cut that sound bite. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so going back to the psychology, and I, I guess a lot of my, my personal reading right now, I'm diving into the, the self-determination theory. Yeah. Decky and Rich Ryan and... I, I see some connections to changing identity and as well as this thing that uh, I really enjoy following, which is reality distortion effect is a, a term invented for Steve Jobs. And he had these high expectations of his employees. But then part of the self-determination theory is something called expectancy value. So it is a high expectation of a, a coach, a leader, a parent or someone in a that you're seeking guidance from that they have this perception of your abilities that maybe you're lacking in self-compassion or your baseline of abilities or happiness is low. So I don't know if you, if you dove into any of this research or see the connection. I, I see it within these packs and teamwork, but um, I don't know. That's just where a lot of my reading is right now in this high expectan expectancy value of have high expectations for the people around you. Yeah, so there's a, there's a chapter in the book uh, that I talk about how to build an indistractable workplace. Because the fact is, you know, I can teach you how to be indistractable and, and teach you how to do things for in your own life for yourself, how to master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs, those four steps we talked about earlier. But those are all things you can do by yourself. 
And the, the fact is, we work and live in environments. We go to work every day. And if we go to work and we say, hey, boss, I'm indistractable right now, uh, don't bother me, some bosses will say, you're fired, <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to bother you whenever I damn well please. And so the question is, what do we do there, right? What do we do if even though we are indistractable, we use these techniques, if we work in an office environment that expects to be able to reach us 24-7, what, what do we do there? Well, the, the first step is to realize that distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. That in my research, what I found was is that this idea that the technology is causing distraction at work is really unfounded. And, and, and here's an example of why. If you think about Slack, right? You guys know what Slack is, right? It's a group chat app. It's the largest, uh, they just went public. It's the largest group chat app in the world. And you would think, you know, people always, when I talk, tell them I'm, I'm working on uh, this book about distraction, they told me about how Slack is constantly distracting. And, you know, you can substitute email or any number of other tools and technologies. Well, you would think if Slack causes distraction, if it's the technology that causes the distraction, then no one uses Slack more than the employees of Slack. And so they should be the most distracted people on earth. And that's not at all what I found. That in fact, when you go to Slack headquarters, 6 p.m., the office is cleared out. If you use Slack on nights and weekends, you're chastised by your, your colleagues because that's not what they do there. And so it turns out that distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction because when people can't talk about a problem, turns out that there's all kinds of things in the closet that are not addressed. And so when you, you, know, you, you mentioned self-determination theory and about uh, these conditions around expectancy, and we know that there are two conditions in the workplace that are not only correlated, they actually cause anxiety and depression disorder. There's a type of work environment that literally drives us crazy, not figuratively, literally drives people crazy. And these are work environments where they have high expectations coupled with low control. So if you have high expectations and high control, you're fine, right? So if you're empowered to do something with those high expectations, whether it's in your athletic performance, whether it's in a job, whatever it is, high expectations coupled with high agency, you can do something to fulfill those expectations, you're fine. It's those conditions when you have high expectations and low control, when you can't do something about the problem to meet those expectations, that's when people are literally driven to anxiety and depression disorders. And so we see this in so many work environments because people don't have a voice. They can't raise their hand and say, hey boss, you know, is this, is this checking email till 10 p.m. every night? Is this working for everybody? I, I, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought I was coming to a place to work that's a 40-hour work week, right? And by the way, if you want to go be an investment banker, you want to go be a startup uh, founder, you're gonna, you just need to know you're going to be working 60, 80 hours a week. That's part of the job, right? Don't become a forest ranger if you have allergies, right? That's fine. Where I think that there's a problem is when we go to work thinking we're getting one thing, right? I'm giving you my time and you give me money. And I'm thinking I'm bargaining for a 40-hour work week, but then I'm doing another 20 hours after work and on nights and weekends. So that's not fair. That's a bait and switch. And so it turns out that those are the type of companies where people can't talk about those kind of problems. These are the kind of companies with the kind of sick workplace culture where if you add technology to the mix, the problem gets really bad. You enter in this cycle of responsiveness, as it's called, and it drives everybody insane. I think it's misaligned expectations. True. Big part of it. Yeah. Or no, I mean, no expectations, right? What do you mean by no expectations? Um, you have a workforce that comes in is unsure what the expectation is of them, right? Yeah. So uh, we see it a little bit in like the micro gym environment and coaches development type stuff. 
uh, gym owners will want their coaches to get better, but won't know, won't tell them how, right? Yeah. Or that, yeah. you know, I wish I just had somebody who could do what I do. Well, what is it that you do? I can't do that. Help me, right? And I'm just thinking of some of our gym owners who are desperately looking for that number two, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that comes from no expectations or no communicated expectations, which would ultimately be that misalignment as well, yeah. right? So one of the solutions for this, this is what I call schedule syncing, and it's back to that second step of making time for traction. One of the things that you can do is to make a time box calendar. And this is a technique that I saw that very few people do, but for every C-level executive I interviewed over the past five years, without exception, every single one of them did this. And a time box calendar just says that you are going to know where you are and what you're supposed to do for every minute of your day. Now, for some people, this sounds crazy. But I'm telling you, every C-level executive I talked to already did this. And it's very simple. All you're doing is you're making a, a template for your week, okay, where you want to spend your time. And this, by the way, is not some pet idea that I came up with. This has been studied in hundreds and hundreds of studies. It's called making an implementation intention. One of the most studied techniques uh, to help you do what you say you're going to do is basically just keeping a calendar where every minute of your day is boxed. You have something that you want to do. Not only the work stuff. Do you have time with your kids, time for the gym, time to cook meals? All that stuff is in your calendar. What this does for that person who's looking for a colleague to hire is that you can say, okay, here's how I spend my time. What can you take from my plate? What can you help me do? Because this is how I spend my time. What can you pull from my plate so that I can do more of something else that I need to do? So this literally takes 30 minutes max. I'll even give you a link in the show notes. I built a mm -hmm. free tool to help people do this. Uh, it takes 30 minutes. And then what we're doing is we're doing what's called schedule syncing. Once a week, we sit down with our staff. We sit down with our colleagues. And we say, okay, it takes 15 minutes. Here's my calendar for the week. Is there anything missing here from my to-do list that needs to be on my calendar that isn't already here? Because you know many people keep a to-do list, but there's a myth around the to-do list. And you've probably seen it, right? If you keep a to-do list, you know how half your to-do list just goes to the next day and the next day and the next day. That's, that's insane, right? The reason that happens is because your to-do list is your output. It's not your input, right? The input that we have is our time. And so putting stuff on a to-do list is only half the job. If it's not in your calendar, it's not going to happen. It's got to be on that schedule. And I so this, this solves out. many problems for us. No, it, it makes sense too. And I, you know, I think, I remember when I first was introduced to the time box deal, like you got to remember, like you can adapt. It's, these are not laws, right? This yes. is how you intend to spend your time. And then, uh, you know, it's incumbent upon you to understand if you're willing to reprioritize. And, you know, maybe that goes back to, uh, that first step of understanding the internal triggers, right. And a little bit of goal setting. It's, it's a terrific point because again, you know, if, if you can't tell me what is traction, you can't tell me what is distraction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you you use Facebook for an hour. You, you were on YouTube. You were you know you're checking email. Is that traction or distraction? I don't know. If it's not in your calendar, there's no way to know the difference. So you know, for me, I used to a few years ago. I used to constantly check my social media accounts all day long. Why? Because I was feeling bored, anxious, lonely, uncertain, internal triggers. So I turned what was previously a distraction into traction in one step. It's in my calendar. I literally have time in my day when I am going to check social media and there's nothing wrong with it. It's great. There's nothing, there's no problem with it. As long as you're using it on your schedule when you want to, as opposed to when these tech companies want you to. And that time is called toilet time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
legit. <laughs> He's not wrong. No, I, I was I, I was laughing because right before this podcast, we did our time box. We went over our calendar. Oh, I thought you were going to say toilet time. Yeah, no. we were all on the toilet, yeah. and uh, that's also when we do our calendars. But no, you, you go through the calendar. What do we have? What do we need? What's mission critical? What do we got to And it's, I think it helps to keep everybody at least in the same deal. Yeah, absolutely. If if you don't do it, it's it's if people don't realize they think, oh, that's more work, right? Now I got to plan that ahead. But let me tell you, it is one of the best investments of your time. You just take that 15 minutes. As you said, you're revising it every week, right? So if you see, you know, last week I didn't have enough time for this or that, let me make some more time in the week ahead. Very easy to do. And it's it's revolutionary. What can we do if our loved ones are not committed? to us or understand that we are all invested in this thing that is power athlete and then our 501c3 Wade's army, but they may not understand, I guess, the, the time and the responsibility that each component takes. So what can we do to communicate just the, the, the potential and the passion that we're investing in the time that we are spending with mm-hmm. our, our work? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And, um, I feel your pain. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember, uh, when I first started doing public speaking and I wrote my first book and somebody paid me, uh, I think it was like $250 to do a talk. And I was like, oh my God, somebody's paying me to do a talk. This is amazing. I never knew. I, I charge a lot more than that now, but at the time I was so, you know, I was taken aback by this and I would talk to anyone, right? I was just so excited about the material I was researching and I was so happy that people wanted to hear from me. And then one day my wife was like, hey buddy, you know, you're kind of neglecting the other uh, things in your life that are important. You prioritized work, but what about the other stuff that's important to you? I thought one of your values was to be a, a, a present father and, and to be a, a partner in this marriage. And then I realized, yeah, I guess you're right. That is one of my values. So again, it starts with turning your values into time. It's just like how we talked about earlier with the employer that says, oh yeah, come work here. It's only a 40 hour week. And then you get there and you realize, oh my God, it's a 60 hour week. You know, this, this person wants me to work on nights and weekends every, every week. And the same goes for our relationships. It's not necessarily that from, from in most cases that you're spending too much time doing something if it's consistent with your values. I mean, if you have a, a loving life partner, they're going to understand what's important to you and what's consistent with your values. It's the misalign. It, it's it's the lack of transparency that gets us, right? It's the fact that oh, honey, yeah, tonight I have that thing. I didn't tell you about it. Oh, sorry. And the way you solve that is again through schedule syncing. So my wife and I have on our calendars every Sunday night, fifteen minutes to review the week ahead. I do it. You know, you could do it in the workplace, and you can do it with your your family as well. And by looking at each other's calendars and saying, okay, you're out this night, you're out this night, you're doing this. Now that transparency takes away all that hard feelings, all that surprise of what I thought we were going to spend together tonight. You know, so we have, I have a commitment to my family where I, I'm, I'm, you know, at home for lunch, certain number of days a week. I'm at home for dinner, certain lunches a week, uh, or certain days a week. And then I'm out certain days of the week as well. But my wife knows that in advance. And so this is where this schedule syncing technique can come in handy. Uh, but when we turn our values into time, we can have that, that schedule that shows us the difference between traction and distraction. And then we can schedule sync with our loved ones in order to tell them how we're going to spend our time in the week ahead. Just going to make a joke. I got to update my schedule and put it on my Tinder profile so they all know. I was going to say, what loved ones are you talking about? Tinder. <laughs> oh, the, the Tinder apps? You're like, yeah. hey, how do I explain to my loved ones? <laughs> Who you mean, uh, Luke and I? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Nir, do you have any, uh, like, what tools do you use to for your calendar? Just Apple calendars, Google calendars, or is there anything else out there that you like? Yeah, so I think a lot of calendars are overbuilt for this purpose. The idea behind a, a, a time box calendar is that you, for every moment of the day, 
you can glance down and say, okay, what's traction? What's distraction? Traction is what's on your calendar. Distraction is anything else, uh, especially the worky stuff, right? Like you have something that you need to know you need to do. And in order to procrastinate, you check email, you do something that kind of feels like work, even though it's not, I call this pseudo work. Hmm. That's just as bad as playing video games, right? So that's the idea. So what you want is a very simple tool. I'll give you a link in the show note. I got so frustrated uh, that I actually just built my own tool uh, and coded it up so that you can very easily make a time box calendar, print it up, have it by your, you know, at your desk uh, or, or on your phone. And so you can see uh, for every minute of the day what's traction and what's distraction. Man, I like that. I, I always thought uh, what we have for our kids is we have whiteboards like these, like each of uh, my little, or my, I have twin girls and a little boy. Each, like the kids have like a whiteboard and we write up what they're supposed to do each week, but it's not time box, but mm. it's kind of interesting. I, uh, I was like, it, wor- uh, it works yeah. for kids. It, it works for adults too. <laughs> well, I think uh, at least with kids, if you don't have something, for them to do, they will find like, you know, but then I also think for kids, like they need, uh, at least I encourage my kids for like free play. Like I'm always amazed, like happy when they go and they play and do something creative. Absolutely. Like, uh, Absolutely. like my daughter has, um, these little hatchimal things and she has this like whole weird, like, uh, um, like worlds of the hatchimals and she'll explain to me and what they do. And I'm like, this is awesome. I'm so happy that like this level of creativity, because the thing that I always worry about with like the computer and, and even like, uh, you know, all this different technology is that the kids are imprinted with somebody else's version of creativity and Mm -hmm. they're not forcing themselves to be creative. That's why I'm like, I want you guys to color. I want you to draw. I want you to like, you know, I, so I'm, I'm real big on like, I want to see what your creativity brings, not just what somebody else gives you for creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's actually a, one of the sections in the book is, is titled how to raise indistractable kids. And it turns out there's nothing wrong with screen time, right? No study has found that two hours or less of extracurricular screen time has any negative effects. So two hours or less, as long as it's age appropriate, right? All media needs to be age appropriate. I wouldn't let my 11 year old walk to the library and just read any book, right? Books are great, but there's a lot of books she's not ready for. And so I'm not just going to let her, you know, go on the internet and look at any website she wants either. There's a lot of dangerous stuff out there. I don't want her to see it at 11 years old. But as long as the content is age appropriate, two hours or less is fine. But the problem is that many parents use iPads as iNannies. And when the kid can't think of anything else to do, they say, well, here, watch this screen. And I think what you're doing is, is right. We should schedule our kids' time just like we should schedule our time because we know the default, if we have that empty white space, the default is going to be looking at a screen, right? So I, I encourage parents, schedule free play, schedule time outside, schedule time with their friends when they're right away from screens because kids turn to their screens when they don't have alternatives, well, right? Is, isn't boredom free. a good thing? Like, like that's kind of where, sure. where, where, way, it's where creativity enough, comes. We can schedule that too. I'm right? going to schedule in boredom. Schedule boredom. I love it. Yeah, it's yeah, called this yeah. podcast. <laughs> Not this episode, near uh, on this side, not your side. All the other ones. <laughs> it's a great point. It's a great point. There's actually turns out to be a lot of benefits to being a little bit bored. So scheduling yeah. a walk, scheduling time to meditate, time to pray, whatever it is that you want to do with your time. If it's consistent with your values, put it on that calendar. It's not going to get done. You know what's going to get done. We'll start putzing around on our screens as opposed to doing what we really want to do. Boom. Dude, I'm um, I'm super excited to read the book. So I want to read Hooked and I want to read this um, Indistractable. I love it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will just put this out. Apologize. I am by far the biggest distraction for you idiots. 
But Luke and I are indestructibles. You can't, you don't no, phase us. But I'll ask you a question and you'll be like, have headphones mm -hmm. on. I'll just keep hitting you until yeah. you do what I want. Yeah. We just go, uh huh. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yes, uh -huh. sir. Absolutely. John. Yeah, hey, yeah. did you play in the NFL? And then boom, we're set. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, thanks, big guy. Thanks yeah, for thanks, the thanks. thanks for I the appreciate apology. that. But yeah. I feel like maybe we're going to get backlash for how we handle that. Yeah. Burn, burn man. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? Unlike you guys, I have very thick skin. <laughs> uh, it's not like I'm over there with like you know thin skin, but cool can, and I know you're all sleep deprived from paper having a new thin, baby. Paper thin, baby. Paper thin, shredded skin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like dick skin, like the uh, the dick pics he sent. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Hey, you're going to get in trouble for those. I'm just mm. letting you know. No, we, I stopped on Here's September 1st. Here's the question. <laughs> What's the statute of limitations? That's what, <laughs> September 1st. I'm yes. fine. Yeah, you're I'm, fine. I'm yeah. saying is, let's just say in high school, somebody said, hey, let me see a dick pic. Oh, and here we are 20 years later. Completely hypothetical. Totally. Uh, totally. Are you going to host the Oscars? No. We're fine. But like <laughs> legally, is there any legal recourse? How many dick pics were you sending? A lot. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's a joke. I think. I can't remember. <laughs> well, it's because you were drinking too much. Well, yeah. I, well, I'm just curious. There's very interesting law to create, but uh, we're in interesting uh, times. So so the uh, the other interesting law that I heard about, which I liked, was they have um, made it legal to carry brass knuckles mm. in Texas now. So September 1st, you can actually carry brass knuckles. So what I guess what had happened was a lady had like something on her keychain that like was some, I don't know, like looked like a like a pipe or was something like, I don't know, like a, something you put in your hand, you hit somebody with. And I guess she was like assaulted. a self-defense, yeah, like a self-defense thing. So those are technically illegal. And so she used it to defend herself in some form of like, you know, attack. And then the perp tried to sue her. And then, oh, then she so was, uh, uh, I guess charges were filed against her for using a weapon in self-defense. And so they signed in this deal that you're allowed to, um, you know, use things in your hands as uh, self-defense. And so one of them was brass knuckles. So I saw that and I was like, man, that means that you can carry brass knuckles legally. But I'm like, if you punch somebody with that, like obviously they're the civil liability. Yeah, I think you're is, good over there, big guy. I mean, well, yeah, I got big fists, <laughs> uh, but the Terminator uh, and the Eliminator. Yeah. So, Bring uh, it. Uh, but it just was pretty interesting, like listening to, Hey, September 1st. And then I, I like read this whole list of all the different laws that were enacted and I just remember thinking like, um, and, I, and I asked my wife, uh, I was like, man, this is a real thing. She's like, good thing we missed all that. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe certain people are, are angry about this. I mean, it just seems, it just seems. Can you believe this? It just what seems, am I supposed to do with all these pictures? It just seems like a bad idea being like, hey, I don't know this chick. I'm just going to slip her in a DP and, no. uh, and see what happens. Like, mm -hmm. this, is that a real thing? I, don't know. I mean, Brett Favre tried that, and he got his ass in trouble. You remember yeah, that? Yeah, that's where I learned it. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He, uh, you know, he near could be a Packers fan, so I don't know. But you live in Florida, so. No, New York now. Oh, New York now. Yeah, yeah we kept hearing the uh, sirens go by, and I was like, that's oh, either I'm New York sorry. or. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, Coincidentally, I when the sirens story, you were yeah. telling the siren story, and there was a siren. Oh. Yeah. Look at that. Wow. You bring it, you brought it all back full circle here. I tried to make this office as soundproof as possible, but unfortunately Manhattan is not a soundproof place. Uh, yeah. No, I would. No worries. No worries, man. Anything else we got Tex? Nope. Big guy. I'm good. Near man. Thank you so much for hopping on the show. This is oh, a great this one. Is a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys. You got it. Appreciate it. And thank you power athlete nation for making it this far in your boredom <laughs> hour on Power Abbey Radio, the premier podcast in strength Trouble, and conditioning. Trouble, All right, and you're, take care, man. Bye. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.
time for you to empower your performance. Follow Nir Eyal on Instagram under the handle at N-E-Y-A-L 99 or go to nearandfar.com for more information on the book Hooked and Nir's research. That's right. Nir is spelled N-I-R. Nir and Far. I get it. It's a pun. It's punny. Until next time. Bye.